I wanted to start by um, uh, giving a commercial. Every year in March, West Houston Bible Church, where I'm pastor in Houston, Texas, that's why we call it West Houston Bible Church, we uh, host the Chafer Seminary Pastors Conference. And this year will be on the dates, uh, Andy had it wrong the last time I gave him the wrong dates, 11th through the 13th. And our two speakers are going to be Dr. Arnold Fruchtenbaum and Dr. Alan Ross. Some of you know who Dr. Fruchtenbaum is. Both of these men have had uh, 50 years of experience teaching the Word of God in their respective fields. Uh, Dr. Fruchtenbaum is going to be speaking on the topic of, is the Hebrew Bible messianic? You may not realize this, but in many, if not most, seminaries today, the Old Testament departments do not believe that there are Old Testament messianic prophecies, that they were just sort of adapted by New Testament writers to fit the scene. And this is a crucial area. Chafer Seminary, we believe the Old Testament is messianic. And so he's going to be addressing that particular issue, and that will be outstanding. The other speaker, usually we've had more speakers, but I think we're having more success with two speakers. The other speaker is Dr. Alan Ross. He was a classmate of Charlie's. When Charlie was in seminary, he, was, he got his THD or PhD from Dallas Seminary and was one of my Hebrew professors, taught word studies, number of other, I studied rabbinical theology under him in the Mishnah. He has his second doctorate from Cambridge in rabbinical theology. And he has written his passion since I had him as a student year, decades ago is to help men learn how to teach the Old Testament from the pulpit. It's very different from teaching epistles. It's a different type of literature. And so he's going to be working on that. So that's going to be great. But, but what will happen in the process? You say, I don't teach Sunday school. I don't do this, what will happen in the process is you will learn the text that he's teaching, that he's using as an example in a way that you've never probably understood it before. So this is going to be at a really outstanding, outstanding conference. So with that, let's uh, bow our heads together and open in prayer. Our Father, we're thankful for this conference. Father, we know that in this country, Satan has targeted marriage, the family, and he has been extremely successful. And the only way to counter this is through your power, through Christians rising to the challenge of what is usually referred to as biblical discipleship, having a passion to know, the wor know your word and work it out in our lives and in our marriages. That is ultimately the solution to the marriage problem as Andy has outlined it. And Father, we pray that you would help us to think about what your word says and about the expectations uh, on husbands, on men, on wives, on women in these relationships, that these are not options. These are design, core design issues that go back to the way you designed men and women in creation, significantly corrupted by sin, but you've provided a redemption solution. And we pray that you would uh, help us to want to implement these decisions as well as to learn them and to go through that uh, long training process of implementation. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. I want to begin by reading the scripture in Ephesians chapter 5. Andy gave me that introduction, said I would talk about the fix. This is God's fix, God's solution. 
for many, many years, I've talked about this, this as the redemption solution, but as a result of recent studies I've done, in, as I've gone through First Peter and other passages touching on this, I think a better title is the servant solution. It, you'll see how that captures everything. Ephesians 5, 22 to 6, 9 is a long passage, but we need to be reminded of what it says as, as husbands, as wives, as fathers, as mothers, uh, as employees and employers. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Comment. That means how you submit to your husband, ladies, is a barometer of how you submit to the Lord. That's the implication. For the husband is head of the wife, as also Christ is the head of the church, and he is savior of the body. Now, the feminists, the radical Christian feminists that Andy mentioned, say that head means source. And all that is saying is that women came from, from Adam. The problem with that is there's no Greek literature that uses the Greek word kephale for head to refer to, to, to source. It refers to authority. And uh, Wayne House was in a well-known debate about 25 years ago uh, at a Presbyterian school with a radical feminist. And that was when computers were first coming out. And she made this statement that kephale means source. It doesn't have anything to do with authority. And so he reached into hit one of those like um, magazine type salesman briefcases and brought out like two reams of a paper of a printout of every use of kephale in Greek literature and offered it to her and said, please show me the examples of where kephale is used as source. <laughs> That was profound. It's never used as source. It always refers to authority. And the point there is Christ is the authority over the church. And he is the savior of the body. Salvation runs through this whole discussion we're having. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let wives be to their own husbands in everything. Now, men, husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church. We need to meditate on that. How does Christ love the church? First and foremost, he gave himself for her. That he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. The point that he's making there is that God designed marriage knowing that he was going to use that as, as a way of depicting the relationship of himself to his church. If we change marriage, it is blasphemy. It violates the whole New Testament and is a direct assault on the role of Christ and the church. We can't back off of that. So husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. That's the total opposite of what we see in this self-centered, narcissistic world today. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as the Lord does the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. For this reason, quoting from Genesis 2 that we've already talked about, for this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh, it's a process. This is a great mystery, 
That means it's previously unrevealed information, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. That was not revealed in the Old Testament. So it's integral. This relationship of Christ and the church, understanding that is built on the analogy of human marriage and to destroy one destroys the other. Radical feminism, same-sex marriage, all the gender confusion issues at the very core are assaults on the authority of Scripture and therefore the authority of God. They are blasphemy at their very core, as Charlie was pointing out yesterday with a quote from Isaiah 55. Nevertheless, let each one of you in particular so love his own wife as himself, and let the wife see the respect, see that she respects her husband. Husbands are to love your wives. Nowhere does it say wives are to love your husbands. Interesting observation. Both of those are directly related to what Andy pointed out in the results of the, of the judgment on the woman and the male, the male and the female in marriage in the fall. Because men want to rule over the woman it harshly, but instead they need to love as Christ loved the church. Women want to rule over the man, which is a lack of respect. So she is told to respect her husband. And you fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the training and admonition of the Lord. Didn't say mothers. It's not the role of the mom to be the spiritual leader in the home. It's the role of the male. And that doesn't mean just nighttime prayers. It's Deuteronomy 6. Everywhere you go, you use it as a teaching tool on doctrine. Slaves, now this is important. Slaves, be obedient to those who are your ministers or your, your masters according to the flesh with fear and trembling and sincerity of heart and in Christ. And with eye service as men pleasers but as slaves, bond servants of Christ doing the will of God from the heart with good will doing service as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that whatever good anyone does, he will receive the same from the Lord, whether he is a slave or free. Reward is seed, rewards the motivation. Okay, what I'm going to do here is just highlight a couple of verses that we just talked about. First of all, wives are to submit to their own husbands as to the Lord. That is fighting words for the modern, non-Christian uh, anybody, because they've all been influenced radically uh, by, by feminism. This idea of submission for them entails oppression and slavery. In Ephesians 5.25, men, you're to love your wife just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her. This is a selfless sacrifice. This is not dominating in the home. This isn't getting your own way. It isn't doing it the way you think it should be. It's really different. That runs counter to our sin nature inclination. Children are to obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Notice the comparison in each one has to do with their relationship with the Lord. Then we get to that last section, and I really want to bring this out, because all through here, this idea of submission to authority runs through the whole the, it, it runs through every passage. The Colossians 3 passage, the 1 Peter uh, 2 and 3 passages all have this idea of obedience and submission, but it's all couched within a framework of service. The role of the church-age believer is to serve. We're to serve one another. 
We're to serve one another in the marriage, and we are to serve in our nation. That one of the ways we impact our nation is through the stability that comes from having a Christian marriage and a Christian home. Notice this emphasis on service. Slaves, and in the Greek it's bond servants, it's the word doulos, the word for being a servant or being a slave. Be obedient to those who are masters according to the flesh with fear and trembling in sincerity of heart as to Christ, not with eye service. Again, it's uh, compound word ophthalma, dulia, ophthalma for eye. We go to an ophthalmologist, but dulia is from servant. There to be, we're to be a servant. That's the mentality of a Christian. We are to be servants. Um, not as men pleasers, but as ser- slaves, do lots again of Christ doing the will of God from the heart. So two key concepts come out of all these passages for marriage, family, and the home. The first is an emphasis on service. We are there not to get our way, but to serve others, uh, whether you're a man or a woman. And second, the motivation is future rewards at the judgment seat of Christ. That's that, uh, um, within this last passage, is that they will, we serve as uh, doing the will of Christ at, uh, from the heart, knowing, verse 8, I didn't put it up on the slide, knowing that whatever good anyone does, he will receive the same from the Lord, whether he is a slave or free. See, rewards the motivation. We live for the future we keep our eye on the ultimate direction God has taken us. But we live in an era when we are under incredible attack. Here's the attack. This is Lindsay Gordon. She is a feminist. She's a professor of history. She says the nuclear family must be destroyed. Whatever its ultimate meaning, the breakup of families now is an objectively revolutionary process. That's the goal of revolutionary feminism. Now, you may think, well, this is somewhere off by and by. I think most of us realize it's not. I had a uh, young woman in my church at Preston, Connecticut, and I would teach on these things, and she always, she was in high school, and she thought, where is this? This is, th- this is just somewhere else. Then she went to uh, University of Connecticut, and she had to take a uh, women's course her first semester and she came back at the end of the first week and she said by the end of the first class the professor had identified and started attacking every evangelical Christian that was in the class uh, telling them that until you get rid of that patriarchal Christianity until you get rid of that pastor who thinks that you need to submit to your husband until you get rid rid of these men in your life, you will never be what you should be. A direct attack, and it happens again and again and again. Sheila Cronin, who is the leader of, a leader in NOW, the National Organization for Women, says since marriage constitutes slavery for women, this is where they're coming from. Marriage to them is, a, is slavery. It is clear that the women's movement must concentrate on attacking this institution. Freedom for women cannot be won without the abolition of marriage. See, the ultimate goal here isn't just having same-sex marriage. They know that that will destroy marriage, and that's the ultimate goal that they have in mind is to destroy marriage. Uh, Andrea Dworkin said that marriage is an institution developed from rape as a practice. 
Robin Morgan, who's an editor for Ms. Magazine, says, I feel that man-hating is an honorable and viable political act, that the oppressed have a right to class hatred against that, the class that is oppressing them. This is the thinking of the world around us today. So we need to be reminded of the biblical view. See, they've characterized, misidentified, and created a, a complete false narrative for what Christianity is and for, for what the role of women is. And we go back to Genesis 127, as both Charlie and Andy have stated, that God created us in his image, male and female. Men and women are equal, but there are role distinctions. And for the feminist to say there are role distinctions is to say that they are not equal. And that is one of their core core presuppositions, but if you look at any kind of team activity, whether it's basketball, whether it's some kind of sports team, basketball, football, whatever, or if it's, I, I like to use the illustration of dancing a lot, if it's ice dancing at the Olympics, one person is the leader. You have the quarterback usually on a football team, he's the leader, that doesn't mean he is a better or worse person than anybody else on the team. That doesn't even mean he's a better or athlete than anybody else on the team. It means that in any activity that involves more than one person, one person needs to be the responsible party and the leader. And that is inherent in every, uh, every human uh, relationship. So what we've learned is that marriage is a divine institution. Now what do we mean by that? A divine institution is not a creaturely convention. You know, the concept of a convention, uh, one uh, son of Tommy Ice came up with a great illustration. He says in Texas, in small towns in Texas, high school football is, a, is an institution. That's what people say. No, no, it's a convention. It's something that is unique to Texas and maybe some other states, but it is something that men develop, mankind develop because they, in, they enjoy it. It is a, a creation of, of, of our culture. By divine institution, we mean something ordained by God that is unchangeable. It is a social law that God built into the way he made the human race. And its purpose is to protect the human race, to perpetuate the human race through birth, and the stability of the human race. And notice that marriage was instituted before there was sin. It has nothing to do with uh, resolving the sin issue. It is all, everything related to marriage was established and instituted prior to sin. What happens after the fall is trying to recover from what, Saul, from what sin does to marriage. Divine institutions, by their definition, are for every human being, regardless of whether they are a believer or an unbeliever, whether they are male or female, or whatever race or ethnicity they are. You, we can't change, this is the way God has, has uh, created things. So let's understand the biblical view of marriage and God's redemptive solution, which is the servant solution. First of all, as Andy said, we believe in context. We teach this in Bible study methods at Chaper Seminary. We teach it in hermeneutics courses. We have to understand the importance of context. The three laws in real estate are what? Location, location, location. The three laws of, of uh, hermeneutics, context, 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 they refer to the same thing. The location of the passage, 
what is surrounding the passage that gives meaning to it. And as my years have gone by, I realize that I can do a lot of word studies that look at words in other passages, but what's really important is understanding the context of what I am studying. There is a little saying that I love to quote, when you take the text out of the context, you're left with a con job. And this is what happens in the vast majority, maybe even 98% of churches today. I have a young couple that's just now coming to my church. I've been working with the, the uh, young man. He was a coach of mine doing CrossFit and other things for two years. And he's saying, you know, they don't, at his church, big mega church, sort of one of these um, generic evangelical churches, he said, all the series are like four or five lessons. They don't really relate to the text. They bounce all over the place. And that's because every time I hear these, they take the text out of the context. And what I believe in is that a pastor, and I even know some teaching pastors that don't do this very well. You have to teach verse by verse because that's how you learn what it really means. I, I've, I'm finishing this next two Sundays a four and a half year study in the Gospel of Matthew. I have discovered numerous passages in Matthew that I thought meant one thing, but once I worked through it in the context, I'm not just talking about the surrounding verses, I'm talking about the argument of Matthew, the surrounding chapters, all of that, they really mean something other than what is commonly, the commonly accepted interpretation in, uh, in Matthew. We have this diagram here of concentric circles. You start with the target text. You look at what's uh, the surrounding paragraph, how that informs it, then how the, the book itself, or even the section of the book, and then the entire book, then the author's writing. So if you study Peter, you look at not only Peter's writings, but maybe Peter's sermons and acts. Uh, the, then you look at the New Testament as a whole, then the entire Bible, and then you look at the geographical background, the external aspects, the geographical background, historical background, cultural background. So all of that informs us. Now, when we look at these passages, these critical passages in Ephesians 5, Colossians 3, 1 Peter 2, and 3, uh, that talk specifically toward marriage, those are application passages, especially in Ephesians. Ephesians, the first part is teaching, instruction, uh, chapters one through three, but in four you start, Paul starts talking about the Christian life. He starts talking about the Christian walk and how we live. And so he gets into some really down-to-earth practical example when he starts talking about uh, what, what happens in the marriage, what happens in the home, what happens in, in, in the workplace. But those things, what my argument here, the reason I'm approaching it this way is what he says there, what he says in Colossians 3, and what Peter says in 1 Peter 2 is, is not an aberration to the rest of Scripture. What we find there flows out of general principles and teaching and instruction throughout all of the Bible. It's not something, because a lot of times, oh, you just go to that Ephesians 5 passage. Well, Paul's a misogynist. I heard that from someone who was going to one of the large Methodist churches in, um, 
in Dallas when I was a student. Paul was a misogynist. So you just take those things out because they don't fit what, what the New Testament is really teaching, which we're to love one another. And they always had this mushy, uh, sentimental idea of what, uh, of, of what love is. So when we look at this servant solution, we have the Gospels. We have key passages in Luke that talk about being a servant. We have key passages in John that talk about being a servant. We also have a lot in John that talks about what it means to love. And we'll look at that in, in just a minute. You have Pauline passages uh, that talk about love, that talk about service, that talk about humility, uh, that talk about submission in many other areas. And you find that in Romans, you find it in 1 Corinthians, Ephesians, Colossians, and Galatians, and touched on in, in other, other passages. Um, for example, Philippians on, on humility. You have passages in 1 Peter, you have passages in 1 John that address these without talking about marriage. In other words, the point that I am saying is that which envelops and produces the applicational commands to wives and husbands and fathers and children and employees and employers in these key passages flows out of the broad uh, statements about Christian virtues that should be evident in every one of our lives. So what am I talking about? Well, before we get there, I've got four axioms for marriage. You always have to remember this. Every marriage is the joining of two sin natures. Every marriage is a joint. I, I have a thing I talk when I do premarital counseling, or, and most of that I do from the pulpit, is I always tell people, before you get married, you really need to do a drill-down analysis of your loved one's sin nature. If you have a trend towards legalism and they have a trend towards licentiousness, when you're both out of fellowship, you won't make it because those are incompatible. You have to be compatible when you're both rebelling against the Lord or you'll never make it. Now, some people say, well, blah, 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 blah. Well, you, you, we're all sinners. We all get out of fellowship. We all get away from the Lord. And if two people are away from the Lord and their sin natures can't understand the other person's sin natures, you're really gonna be ec ec explosive. As our sin natures, are really important to understand because their whole orientation is, is selfishness. Their whole orientation is uh, self-centeredness. And what happens often is we just ignore that. That for every one of us, our core orientation is, is me. You know, I, I could pick on any one of you. And I would say, you know, what you need to understand is your life isn't about you. It's about me. You know, you, you come to my church, but it's not about you, it's about me. That's, that is the, our constitutional defect, that it's all about me. And yet we all get wrapped up in romantic love and everything when we're going to the, go, go to the chapel and we get married and we say our vows. But over the last 30 years of being a pastor, I have been developing the skill of mind reading. And I listen to what they're thinking as they're reciting the vows. And I've written this out for you. I thought I would share this. Here's what the groom is actually thinking as he states his vows. I'm giving you the privilege of being my wedded wife. God has prepared you and provided you for me. From the time we have known each other, you have given me pleasure 
and filled me with joy and made me feel like a man. You have complimented me, adored me, and made me the center of your life. You have laughed at my jokes. You've ignored my failures and shortcomings. I vow to let you continue to cook my meals, wash my clothes, clean my house, and worship me until death do us part. I promise that whatever happens in life, I will still need your undevoted admiration and adoration. I will expect you to make me laugh when I am down, to encourage me when I feel defeated, to always do what I expect without being told, and to keep my house and my finances in order, even after I go out one day and throw $60,000 on a new pickup truck. This is what the bride thinks. Oh, my love, I am so thankful that God has given you to me. Since we met, you have showered me with presents. You have put me on a pedestal, and you have helped with the dishes and the laundry. You have adored my Pekingese even when he has lifted his leg on your shoes. I, that's a real situation. Every time the guy came in the house, the dog went for his leg. Okay, you never, you never say anything that makes my butt look big. Oh, excuse me, let me restate that. You never say that anything I wear makes my butt look big. And that every dress I wear makes me look slim. Even though you love my cooking, you graciously take me out to almost every meal. I vow to love you forever as you let me pursue my dreams and ambitions, which include giving you a complete and total makeover. As long as you care for me and let me do what I want, let me win every fight, I will always be at your side. And that's why many marriages don't last more than two or three years, and why people don't even get married anymore because they don't want to go through the hassle, the hassle of divorce. So every marriage is, involves the joining of two sin natures. Second, it takes two people to make a marriage successful but only one to destroy a marriage. If I were to poll you on what it takes to, what the goal of marriage is, you might come up with the wrong answer. The goal of marriage is not to be happy. That's what, I, you often ask people, what do you want out of your marriage? I want to be happy. Or the one I've heard a lot is, from women especially, is I want to feel fulfilled. If you're a believer, that has nothing to do with God's purpose for marriage. The purpose for marriage is to glorify God. And when two people are living together, growing together to glorify God, then the byproduct of that is they will be fulfilled and they will be happy. But if your goal is to be fulfilled, to be happy, that's a self-centered sin nature goal. And that is a recipe for disaster. The purpose of marriage, that's my third point, purpose of marriage is to glorify God. Third point is God uses marriage as a tool for sanctification. Other, the other, others have pointed out that we get in conversations with our wife, and I've learned over the years that, that when something has happened, maybe it's at church or here or there, or we've met somebody, went out with somebody, ask her, what did you think? And 10 times out of 10, what she perceived in the meeting, in the conversation, or whatever, I'm there going, wow, I didn't see any of that. I have a secretary that for many years uh, would always sit in with me when I did any marriage counseling, which isn't a lot. 
And uh, I would always finish, after we finished and after the people left, I'd say, well, what did you think? And she'd give me this whole rundown. And I'd go, wow, missed that. Because women are sensitive to things and see things and hear things that are, men are oblivious, oblivious to. So we need to pay attention to our wives. There's, there's this union that takes place. And when we're wrong and they say, you know, you really blew that. God is using that to shave off or smooth out those rough edges that we have. And I tell you, and I know some guys here that are single, been single a long time, but I see this in single men. There's so many single women and men today. I see this as an issue in their lives. They don't have a spouse to correct them. And I don't mean that in a nasty way. We learn so much from our spouses that see flaws that we're impervious to. So God uses marriage as a tool for sanctification. Then last, what I've already talked about, the purpose of marriage is not to be happy, but to glorify God. So we have four foundational spiritual virtues. Being a servant, humility, love, and submission. Now I want to tell you where I'm going with this. Throughout the scripture, the New Testament, how many times are we told, Jesus says, I give you a new commandment that you love one another. How many times is that repeated? That you love one another as I have loved you. That is expected of every single believer. So men, when Jesus tells you to love your wife as Christ loved the church, this isn't some new thing. This isn't some unexpected, unrealistic, impossible goal to achieve. This is what's expected of every single believer. He's just saying this really needs to be enacted in your marriage. In humility, you can't love without humility. Humility is about orientation to authority, as we'll see in just a minute. And that's connected to love, and that's connected to submission. And there are lots of passages I could go to, and I've just picked a couple of them to try to point this out. In terms of the first one, service, our primary purpose in life is to serve the Lord. Uh, this entails first serving the Lord then serving others. Our service for others is a result of our orientation to the Lord in serving Him. There's only one other option, and that's serving our sin nature. So you're either going to do things from a self-serving motivation, or you're doing things walking with the Lord in a God-serving orientation. But you, it's, there's no other option in this life. Jesus in Luke 4, 8, quoting from Deuteronomy 6, 13, says that you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only you shall serve. When we're serving our body of sin, as Paul says in, in Romans 6, we're worshiping ourselves. We're worshiping our own desires. Jesus put it this way in Matthew 20, 28, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. We're to be Christ-like, which means being a servant is integral to our Christian life. That pattern is reiterated again and again as Jesus teaches about leadership. One of the things I have tried to do over the last 20 years or 30 years in my ministry is not to talk about, wives, you need to submit to your husbands. You need to follow his leadership. It's, that's really what this is about. And it needs the kind of leadership, men, that you need to have is a kind of leadership that is a servant leadership, not a tyrannical leadership. Jesus said in Matthew 23, 1, he who is greatest among you shall be your servant. 
not trying to get his way because he thinks he knows it all. In Matthew 23, 12, he goes on to say, whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and that screen cut off the rest, uh, the rest of the verse. That's Matthew, what is that, Matthew 23, 12. Uh, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. The path to exaltation, it's not necessarily in this life, it's at the judgment seat of Christ. This is one of many places where I see the motivation ultimately related to rewards at the judgment seat of Christ. And then just a third thing I put in here, not every servant is perfect. Being a servant or serving the Lord doesn't mean you're perfect, doesn't mean you don't sin, doesn't mean you don't sin magnificently. David is called God's servant, a man after God's own heart, even after all of his horrible, egregious sins, committing adultery, trying to cover it up, conspiring to have uh, Bathsheba's uh, uh, husband killed, all of this is he's still called the servant because that's the orientation of his heart. In Galatians 5.13, Paul says, For you, brethren, have been called to liberty. Only do not use liberty as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. That's for every one of us. So when God tells men to love your wives as Christ loved the church, this just fits within a whole matrix of passages in the Scripture that we're to love one another. We're to serve one another. Colossians 3.24 says, Knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance, for you serve the Lord Christ. There we see service is connected to inheritance, the giving of rewards at the judgment seat of Christ. And the context of Colossians 3.24 has to do with, with uh, wives submitting to their husbands, husbands uh, treating their wives with respect, children obeying their parents, and, par and fathers raising up their children, the admonition of the Lord. So the motivation, why should I serve this guy who's he doesn't even, he's on negative volition. He doesn't even love the Lord. He's just a bum. Why should I respect him and why should I submit to him? It's because it's going to come out at the judgment seat of Christ. There's only one other option. Paul states it in Titus 3 3. For we, are, we ourselves were also, also once foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. That's the sin nature. We cover it up well. We have a veneer of goodness. But just scratch that veneer a little bit. Don't give somebody what they want, and the reality of their sinful corruption comes out. And in, in, in life, we have two options. In a marriage, you have two options. Walk with the Lord and serve Him, and that impacts your love in the marriage or you just serve yourself, and you're just in self-idolatry. The third, the third virtue is humility, exhibited by Jesus. The classic passage is Philippians 2.8. He humbled himself by being obedient. See, that applies. Here's Christ a man, but women are to be obedient to submit to their husband. That involves humility. Jesus do a study of what happens to Jesus in the six trials and how he is beaten and how he's maligned and how he is ridiculed and how he is abused. He submitted to that, to the Father's will to go through all of that in order to accomplish the goal. And we have to be goal-oriented. We have to live our spiritual life with the end, of mind, end in mind 
and we humble ourselves by being obedient to God's word. And the result is our own spiritual growth and sanctification. In 1 Peter 5.5, 5, the aspect of humility comes out. 1 Peter 5.5 5 says, yes. He says, likewise, you younger people, submit yourselves to your elders. The same word that's used uh, in other passages related to slaves, related to wives, related to children. It's not a bad word. It doesn't entail slavery and oppression. That is just the false narrative of the world system. Yes, all of you. Does anybody here fall outside the category of all of you? Okay, all of you be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility. See, again, humility is related to obedience and submission to authority. That's why Moses is called the most humble man in the Old Testament, because he submitted to the authority of God. He didn't submit to the authority of the three million griping and complaining Jews that he was taking through the wilderness for 39 years. God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. 1 Peter 5, 3, uh, 5, 5, and 6. So these are key, key virtues. Love. We're to love one another. What is love? Have you ever tried to define it? I worked in a writing ministry at one point, and I was writing a theological dictionary trying to define love. Now, unless you're, do you have anybody here as an English teacher? Now, you know the difference between a definition and a description. But there's some, most people don't know. I, I talk about this. What we, you look at the love in Webster's Dictionary, it says it's an emotion. Right away, they get it wrong. You look to the Bible, you don't have a definition, you have pictures to understand what love is, and you have a list of characteristics in 1 Peter 3.15. What is the picture? How do we understand love? John 3.16, for God loved the world in this way, that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Romans 5.8, God demonstrated his love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, See, love involves the right kind of action towards somebody who is abusing you, corrupting you, angry with you, and totally against you. Love is, best I've come up with, is doing the best for the object of love. Now, the problem with that definition is it's not what I think is best. You know, I can tell my wife, well, I think this is the best thing for you to do, and, and undergirding that is my selfish desire. That's, what, that's my agenda. But the word best is a superlative and not a comparative. That means it refers to something that is absolutely, objectively, qualitatively the right thing to do. How do we know what is absolutely, objectively, and qualitatively the right thing to do? There's only one place. That's the Bible. Only by knowing the Word of God and growing where the, your values, your norms and standards come from the Scripture can you develop the integrity to know what is really best to love another person. Love isn't easy. It's something we grow. I'm not saying this is, you got to wait till you get here before you can do it. But it's the process. 
and that means spiritual growth. That's the only way we can develop the kind of integrity necessary to truly love someone. Otherwise, it becomes self-centered. Saying, I'm going to do the best for you isn't what I think is best. It's, in ter- the, what, it's always in terms of glorifying God and what will enable the other person to grow in spiritual maturity. So, to truly love, our thinking must have been shaped by God's word. That means not just coming to church. That means having a passion about studying the word and internalizing it in our life. A passion for it. If you, th- I tell my, in fact, there's an article on Fox News where some pastor is saying the same thing. I tell folks, if you think with the brainwashing of the world and the entertainment and everything else that you got until you were saved, and from all your peers and professors and everybody around you, if you think that a 30-minute sermonette on Sunday morning is going to counter that, you're fooling yourself, you're in self-deception, you're fooling God, and you think you're fooling God, and you're going to do, fool yourself into spiritual self-destruction because you can't do it. We have to be immersed in the Word. You have to read through the Bible. I tell people every year, read it different plans. You can read it from Genesis to Revelation. You can read it chronologically. You can read according to different plans. Ray Mondragon has a plan that I've got up on my website that I use, and a lot of people around Schaefer Seminary use for reading through the Bible in a year. But we have it over and over again. I just got back from Israel, one couple, Uh, we were down by the Sea of Galilee, they came over, and they started telling me how my emphasis on reading the Bible had transformed their lives as they started reading the Bible through every year for the last 15 years. And they told me, they said, you know, all these people on this church, on this trip, who've come from places all over the world who listen to you on the internet all the time, we sit around at the table, and we're all talking about how we've started reading the Bible together all the way through every year, and how it's changed our lives. Is something going on with the sound? Because you know, it feels like everything's falling off my ears, and I got glasses and hearing aids and microphone and everything hanging on my ears. There, that's better. Okay. So, um, we have to be transformed. And who's the transformative agent? The pastor. He's called a teacher. He's the instructor. If, and, and we can't let a pastor be limited to 30 or 40 minutes. The pastor should teach. You know, otherwise, you're just fooling yourself. We have to be reprogrammed from the world. And that means, if you think it's just on Sunday morning, the article said, uh, that was on Fox News, basically the guy was saying, if you're not committed to transformation by the word of God, go play golf. Don't get involved in my church and cause trouble because 80% of the people aren't committed, they're not giving, they're not witnessing, they're not learning, they're just showing up for some social reason and that's not doing anybody any good. So go play golf or sleep late. Jesus said in John 13, 34 and 35 in regard to love, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all will know that you are my disciples. A disciple is more than just someone who believes in Jesus Christ. The term believer in Christ, 
which secures your eternal destiny, is not the same as being a disciple. A disciple is a believer who says, I, I, I'm not just satisfied with my eternal destiny. I want to glorify God in my life. I want to have my life shaped by God, and I want uh, God to be honored by everything in my life. When we get to Ephesians 5, and it talks about husbands loving your wives, that's in a context, uh, in that narrow context, which I talked about earlier in Galatians, I mean, Ephesians 5, 2, walk in love as Christ also has loved us and given himself for us. That's the pattern. Ephesians 5, 25, husbands are to love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for us. Husbands, let me give you a little hint. Don't start talking about your wife needing to listen to you more, obeying you more, submitting to you more until you get this figured out. When you start loving her as Christ loved the church, guess what? Those other problems will minimize. That's where we need to go. In Colossians chapter 3, it says that we're bear with one another, forgive one another, and if anyone has a complaint against one another, even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. That's talking to every believer, but that needs to be a stronger reality in the home. We all fail, we're all sinners. And if we understood that better, then we could have better, more productive conversations with our spouses when we have marriage problems or difficulties. Love involves respect and honor. 1 Peter 3, 7, Andy talked about it. Husbands, you're to give honor or respect to the wife as to a weaker vessel. She may be pretty tough. She may be tougher than you, but nevertheless, you know, one of the negative unintended consequences of the feminist movement is that it's destroyed relationships between men and women and the ability to communicate, and now we live in just an even more fragmented world than we were ever in before. Submission is the fourth virtue, 1 Peter 2.13, therefore submit yourself to every ordinance of man. See, submission isn't something new. Every believer is supposed to submit to the law. Second, we're, to, we're not only supposed to submit to the law, but servants are supposed to submit to their masters. All the same word. N- and notice, it says not only to the good and gentle, but also to the harsh. Now, don't read abusive and wife beater into the word harsh. Harsh is just you're living with some guy who's just a jerk. Okay? I know nobody here was ever a jerk, male or female. But for those out there that are jerks and are not at all loving, we have to put up with it. That's part of how God is sanctifying us and making us Christ-like. Think about what Jesus went through for you, through the trials, through the beatings, through the abuse, vilified. Wives are to be in the same way as servants and as people submit to the government, be submissive to your own husbands, that even if some do not obey the word, so you can't say, well, the guy's not a Christian, the guy's not obeying the word, the guy's carnal, none of that excuses lack of submission and kindness and generosity uh, toward him. 1 Peter 3, 5, For in this manner as in former times, the holy women who trusted in God also adorned themselves being submissive to their husband. See, this is, it's the whole context of Scripture. We're not just talking about these few isolated passages that target marriage. We're talking about these are the norms and standards for all Christian life. 
So we see this as the context in the Gospels, in Pauline literature, and Peter, and in John. The servant solution is to take all of this and put it within the context of we're to serve the Lord. If we serve the Lord, we're to serve one another. And also what we do as a result of that is we are serving our nation. Whatever nation you're in, you're, you're serving your nation. Now, as an example of this from unbelievers uh, who have realized that something makes, uh, what I'm saying is that your patriotic duty is to have a good Christian marriage and raise good Christian kids who are, are passionate about their relationship with the Lord. In Israel, the highest birth demographic for a long time were among the uh, ultra-Orthodox. They would have 10, 11, 12 kids. But in the last seven or eight years, there's been an interesting demographic shift among the secular, non-religious young couples in Tel Aviv. They have realized this whole issue of the demographic bomb in Israel that in order to have, be able to have more future soldiers to defeat the Arabs and everything else, it's the patriotic duty of every young Jewish family to have a lot of babies. And so there's a population boom in Israel. And that's just an analogy. What we're doing to have a good Christian marriage is your patriotic duty for the stability of your country. And in your Christian life, development and application of these four virtues produces these specifics in our marriage. I was going to go on and talk about some other things. Let me just summarize this. The broader context is that, that we're to walk by the Spirit. We're to be filled by the Spirit. Ephesians doesn't tell us what we're filled with. It's not the Spirit. I can say, fill my cup with coffee. That's content. In Greek, that's expressed through a genitive. If I say, fill my cup with that pitcher, I'm not talking about what's in the pitcher. I'm just talking about the pitcher as the means to filling my cup. That's what's used here. The means of the filling is the Holy Spirit. And the result is speak to, him, speak to one another in uh, psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, sing and make melody in your heart to the Lord, and give thanks. Colossians 3.16 the command is to let the word of Christ richly dwell in you. That's the content. The results of the command to be filled by means of the Spirit and the results of the command to let the word of Christ richly dwell within you are the same. And where that goes is submitting to one another, husbands loving your wives, Christ submitting, uh, wives submitting to your husbands, children obeying your parents, fathers raising your children, nurture and admonition of the Lord. It is the direct result of walking by the Spirit and letting the Spirit fill you with His Word. What we see as a result of that is we become grateful for the spouse that God has given us, Ephesians 5.20. It results in submitting to one another in the fear of God. That's, the, that's Ephesians 5.21. And the next phrase flows from that in Ephesians 5.22, wives submit to your husbands. It's in this context of walking by the Spirit and being filled by the Spirit. And it results also in husbands loving their wives as Christ loved the church. I want to close with 1 Peter 3, 7, and 8. Husbands, likewise, dwell with them, your wives, with understanding, giving honor to the wife as to the weaker vessel, and as being, what? Heirs together of the grace of life. That inheritance is this whole idea of rewards. We live today with the end in mind. We're going to get rewards that relate to position and responsibility in God's kingdom when he comes. 
So we are to think of living with our spouse in terms of our future rewards. 1 Peter 3.8 says, Finally, all of you be of one mind, and that includes husbands and wives, be of one mind, having compassion for one another, love as brothers, be tender-hearted, and be courteous to one another. Okay, I'm going to close. I want to close in prayer, and then I, I don't know if we're going to have a break and have Q&A or just go straight to Q&A. I know I need to leave it in 25 minutes to go to the airport to catch a flight, but let me close in prayer. I'm not using that mic. Okay. Father, thank you for this time. Thank you that we've been challenged with the fact that marriage, sexual identity, the roles in marriage, the purpose of marriage, are all defined by you. They were defined before sin ever entered into human history. And that you have a plan and a purpose for marriage. It is the core that gives stability to a nation that brings stability to a culture and perpetuates that culture through the education within the home as fathers rear their children in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. Father, we pray that each of us here, many of us are older, we don't have children, we have grandchildren, but we can influence, we can counsel, we can remind. This is the focus. Pray that we will develop a passion for knowing you, a passion for applying your word, that we may truly glorify you in all that we say and do. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.